Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I'm David. And super excited for our guest today. A little side note, just being uh, really selfish on my behalf, it's 10 years that I've been in the little uh, Big Brother, Big Sister program and really excited to uh, have that relationship with my little. And now he is a junior in high school, and he is in – I actually just saw him in the orchestra pit for the past four days. He's uh, doing the whiz right now, and he's really excited about going to, uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, Juilliard or Juilliard and, or NYU. So he's really interested in being a successful teenager. And our guest today will give us some tips and tricks to be uh, a successful teenager. He's talking about the best-kept secret of successful teenagers. Uh, we always, as older people, think that what's going wrong with the world with these teenagers? What are they thinking about? And he's here to shed light on the other half where we don't have to be as worried. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Paul Burnaby to the podcast. Welcome, Paul. Yeah, thank you. Nice to be with you. Appreciate the invitation. And thank you for your, uh, your good work with that, that young man. It makes a difference. I think every, uh, every kid is one positive relationship away from being successful. And uh, your, your role in his life is going to make a difference. Sure. Thank, thank you for that, and, and welcome to the podcast, Paul. Uh, I guess before we get started, I want to kind of go to that. You said we're one person away from success. So would you say that that it takes a, what is it, a community or a, uh, what is it, it takes a community to raise a, a child, a village, yeah, a, a village. village. Yeah, a village. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think that's true, but it really takes one person to believe in a kid, you know, because how, how, does, how, does, it, how does a kid come to really know themselves uh, other than through a social mirror, that's the language we use in our work, a social mirror, or from another, in a relationship, we come to know ourselves by based on how other people respond to us. Oftentimes, um, and and that can sometimes not be healthy. I mean, sometimes people respond to us in, in unhealthy ways, or respond to kids in unhealthy ways, and they come to believe something about themselves that's not true. But uh, if they're in a healthy relationship, that that mirror from the other person, you know, um, the smile when when a kid walks into the room knowing that somebody smiles when, when that kid walks in the room, knowing that uh, somebody wants to spend time with a kid, knowing that somebody uh, is there to, uh, you know, con- continue to, to support me even when things are difficult. I mean, all, all that stuff just makes a difference in how kids come to know themselves and therefore uh, how they come to respond to people in their lives as well, or, or situations like school. Our, our world is school. That's, I hang out in schools. Uh, my my team is 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 involved with. Uh, we we've trained now a million teachers across the country because we're trying to help them be more effective as they work with with uh, the kids who are in their classrooms, whether it's preschool or through senior year in high school. That is phenomenal. And I, I want to ask you about the school system. Uh, there's an argument that the smaller the classroom, the more individualized attention that you get. And some of these schools, when you're talking about the personal mirroring. I mean, how can you have that one-on-one communication if you're teaching a class of 40 students? And that's really difficult. Um, I, I think the, uh, the, the benefit of the teacher is that that teacher is there day after day after day. But there certainly are things in our schools that, that we need to take a look at 
Um, class size, you know, certainly would be one of them. But I think other things are, are probably even more significant, and 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 that is what's really our our purpose. Um, and I, I start teaching in 1970, uh, and I would say my purpose in 1970 was to dump information into my students' heads. I mean, every teacher that I had, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and every teacher that I had did that. They, they were a source of information for me. Um, and so we've come to think of, of teaching as, as, as that role, as, an, as a provider of information. And I think that will always happen. I think teachers will always provide some information, but that's not our purpose. And I think we've got to get that right in American schools. We have to fully understand really what our purpose is and what we're doing with Top 20, it's all the trainings that we conduct, is that we're kind of beginning with that idea. Well, why do we do what we do, you know, in the school? And so where we're going with that is human development. Um, we are in the business of human development uh, through learning. There are, there are groups on the planet who do human development through farming. They, they grow crops so human beings can eat, and that, that's a part of human development. That's not what we do in schools. We do human development through learning. And uh, I, I think that that purpose can easily get lost in, in our system of, of, of education in America. We can start believing that, that we're in the business of test scores, you know, and, and there's nobody in the country who wants higher test scores than I do, but we don't get test scores high by focusing on test scores. We have to look at these kids as human beings. In fact, I learned a long time ago from one of my grandsons, his name is Joe, I learned the concept human being precedes human doing. He, th that's not his language. He said to me one day, he said, Grandpa, I love school because my teacher says to me in the morning, hi, Joe, I'm glad you're here. And when, he, when this little boy told me this, he was five years old at the time, I realized he was saying something that is profound. And in Grandpa language, it's human being precedes human doing. That we want kids to be doers, right? We, we want this kid to get into Juilliard. We want this kid to, to do well. But before that young man who you are working with can, we have to first deal with him as a human being. And it's the same, through, same thing is true for us as adults. Uh, whatever job we're in, we've been hired to be a doer, all right? But before we can do what we're capable of, we have to deal with ourselves and each other as human beings. So human being precedes human doing. And, 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 and when we kind of stay in touch with that idea, that principle, then human development becomes our, our purpose. Um, in American schools, we're not growing Christmas trees. <laughs> These are children. And so I think we just have to stay locked in on that, that, uh, that purpose of, of human development. And I, that, really that, like... I think that's even more important than, than class size, is to, is to be aware of that. Class size is a big deal, but I think our, our, our being really tuned into our purpose is the biggest factor that we need to get, get straight uh, in American schools. Sure. And uh, I'm thinking of the, the documentary, Who to Inv Where to Invade Next, which was, have you seen that documentary with Michael Moore? I have not. Yeah, it's a really good documentary. It came out a couple of years ago where, you know, it was a tongue-in-cheek from an American standpoint. He had mentioned – are you familiar with Michael Moore? Mm-hmm, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So they come to him because they say uh, – just 
this is the premise. So the premise is since World War Two, the, the, the wars that we've engaged in have kind of they haven't been the most successful. And so they come to him and they look at, okay, well, we've tried every we've used all our resources. Now we're gonna look to you as to what will make America great again type of deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. before that before that statement became <laughs> what it is today. But anyway, so what he did is tongue in cheek is he went around to different countries, uh, mainly in Europe and he was showing how they were more so being a, a human being versus a human doing in their whole framework of raising a, a positive uh, communication, a positive environment for this child, for a teenager, was uh, totally different than ours. Ours was more so, like you, like you just mentioned, uh, what are we producing? What are we doing the full day? Uh, you get in trouble if you're sitting around here. Versus there, they had, you know, three vacations a year. They just had a whole uh, full, fuller life as opposed to, you know, producing a widget. And so they were showing that these schools are setting us up to produce a widget, and that's what you're going to be until you die versus a human being, which you were uh, talking about at the beginning of the podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, I think you'll like that. And so... I, I do want to ask you before we get into this, this social emotional learning. Uh, I want to ask you about it, just as an aside. I, I actually taught second grade like a long, 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 long time ago. So yeah, yeah, uh, this, cool. I, I'm, I'm glad talking to you because this this is kind of near and dear to me. And so I wanted to ask you about uh, North and South. And so not the traditional Civil War North and South, but it seems like in every state that there is kind of that north and south division. Uh, in the north, that's where the, the majority of the, the funding is going to the schools. And then the south, not so much. You know, the south is by the airport. Uh, they don't have the, maybe the economic infrastructure. And so those two schools of thought, they're kind of set up to maybe in the northern schools, you may even have this conversation about a human being. But in the in the south, it seems like you're automatically – uh, set up to do uh, a human doing. What's your take on that? Well, uh, I mean, if you're, ta- you're talking literally about the North and the South, um, I, I've not experienced that. In fact, I was just in Birmingham, Alabama on Monday and Tuesday of this week. Um, and I would say the school that I was at was very interested in, in human being. Um, we've, we've, we, we've trained a, a million teachers across the country, so we've been, you know, all over. I think there are probably four or five states that we haven't trained in. Um, so I, when when we are working with the faculty or staff, um, the interest that I see in this concept of human being precedes human doing, and and we're in the business of human development. I, I don't see any distinction anywhere. Everybody is interested in that. Uh, everybody, it, it, it seems to make sense. That we really are in that. I think I think there's an old mentality, um, and it's it's again across the board. It's not. It, I don't see it geographically uh, different, but there's a, there's an old mentality old mentality about what a school is um, that that is gradually shifting. We're gradually shifting away from that, and it's that it's that um, that mentality of uh, it's, it's from the industrial age. Where we're where we're building something, you know, we're we're adding something to 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 this to this car as it comes through. I put on the wheels, you put on the the hubcaps, and you know, and, and then it comes out at the other end. And I think that's a that industrial era provided that that kind of a um, 
frame for what a school should be. Um, but it's very different from even what the word education means. Education comes from a Latin word that means to, to, to draw out. In other words, there's something in a child. Right? This young man that you are, are being a big brother to, there's some, when you met him, there was something in him already. And by your relationship and your concern and care for him, that is growing, that is developing. It's coming from the inside out. And so that I, I think we have to return to that kind of concept. That doesn't mean that we that doesn't mean that we don't give kids information and 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 uh, and in some ways they uh, something's something's provided to them as they go through the system as well. But I think that whole notion of what education really is about has got to be restored, so that um, we're we're dealing with the the overall health and well-being of a child. Not just the not just the academic achievement. I was I was in a school district in New Jersey um, twice um, in the last couple months. Once in August, once in October. Uh, and the the um, the mission statement in that school district, I almost know it by heart. It's that we will uh, uh, we're responsible for the academic, social, emotional, and lifelong success of all of our students. So, so I had that on the screen, PowerPoint slide, when I started working with these 600 teachers. And I said, if that's your mission, I would like to ask one of you to please show me how you can walk on water. Because if you can do those things in your mission statement, then walking on water is gonna be a piece of cake. So there, there really is this shift even in what we're expecting from teachers. When I was a young teacher, so, so those four things, academic, social, emotional, and lifelong learning. When I was a young teacher, I was responsible for one of those, not all four. I, I was responsible for the academic growth and achievement of kids. Even that's difficult. But we're now expecting this, you know, this whole array of, of uh, social, emotional, and lifelong learning. And I think we should. I, I, I'm glad that, the, that that expectation is now being placed on American schools and on American teachers. But that's really difficult. So there, there's, there's been this whole shift. Uh, I think that we're moving slowly away from this industrial model to more of this human development model. Um, I'm excited about that. It's not moving quite as fast as I'd like it to go, but maybe uh, doing podcasts like this might, might advance that a little bit. So thanks that you guys are doing too. We do our, we do our share for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, let me ask. Let me ask you, Paul. So, with the with the mission statement, I mean, that's that's a huge undertaking, and a lot of teachers seem to be overwhelmed because it's just more demands that are on them. And the relationship that you mentioned with your grandson is a great relationship, meaning that there's some family involvement. And a lot of teachers, especially with this huge mission statement that you mentioned, how much interaction or involvement with the parents do they have with the students? Because it seems like when both parties are, are both doing their share, that that's when the child really benefits. If, if it's all in school and no parent involvement, uh, you kind of fall on deaf ears maybe after 3 o'clock when they go home. Absolutely. And that's why four years ago we started a new program in Top 20 that we call Becoming a Top 20 School because you, ju you just hit the nail on the head. Um, oftentimes, when I ask parents, when I when I ask teachers, what's a um, 
what, what the problem that you encounter in your profession. They will say parents, all right? parents calling and complaining about X, Y, or Z. And when you ask parents, they will often say teachers. All right? um, that relationship is, is not effective. We have to stop blaming parents and we have to stop blaming teachers. Blame, blame is a dysfunctional uh, activity. And so when, four years ago, um, I said to my team, you know, we've trained hundreds of thousands of teachers, but I don't think we have a top 20 school. And so we started looking at that. What would that entail? And so we, we started four years ago this program called Becoming a Top 20 School. It's, a, it, it's about a three-year program that we work with the school. And there are three components to it. The first one is exactly what you're talking about. The first one is we focus on the human development of three groups of people, obviously the kids, the students, but also the faculty and staff. And I'll tell you why in a minute. And the third group is parents. That, that schools and teachers and top 20 has something to offer parents that will help them be more effective parents. I, 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 I think about this role a lot. My, my mother and father, I thought, were fabulous parents who never had to parent <laughs> because, <laughs> because everything in the culture kind of supported their values. Right? Everything that was on television, for example, uh, this is go back to black and white. You guys wouldn't even understand what I'm talking about. This is a black and white TV. Um, but I, I think my wife and I were pretty good parents who seldom had to parent. Um, there were a couple of times, one time when one of our daughters got caught drinking when she was in high school. We had, to, we had to parent in that situation. One time when our oldest daughter was watching a movie with a girlfriend of hers called Sixteen Candles. Now, I don't know if you ever saw that movie. But, but I have four daughters, and 16 Candles is not a movie that would, that would sit well with a father of four daughters, right? So we had, to, we had to parent in that situation. I have four daughters right now who have children, and I watch them parent, and it's 24-7. I, I, you know, we're, we're often talking to young, to young parents, and it's 24-7 because there's so much that's out there that comes into our homes automatically with, with technology. Everything that's out there is in, is, is in our homes. Now, some of it's good, but a lot of it's not from a parent point of view. So I think this role of, of a school, of, of finding meaningful ways to support parents and helping them be more effective parents is, is, is now the, the job of American schools. It's just another layer of responsibility. And in the, in the schools that we're working with that are becoming top 20 schools, they're, they're focusing on that, the, kind, the specific things they can do to help parents be more effective in, in raising their kids. The reason why I'm concerned but we're also focusing on the human development of faculty or staff is that we're about to encounter a major teacher shortage in our country. Um, for example, the, the northern seven states, Midwestern, the Midwestern seven states, northern states, if you, have, if you looked at, took a look at the number of young people in the education programs in the, in the colleges in those states, it's about 40% of what it was six or seven years ago. Now, baby boomers like me are about to check out professionally. Retirement's around the corner. There are not enough teachers to, re to replace the, the baby boomers. So we need to create schools and an experience in school that, that adults want to be in, teachers want to be in. We know that 10% of first-year teachers this year will never teach again. They're not just going to change jobs in terms of changing a school, teaching a different school. They're not going to teach again. So 
So the human development of these three groups of people is really essential if we want to be effective and, 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 and help people develop at these, in, in these different positions. A second component of a top 20 school is culture. And so we work specifically with the school to help them develop a highly effective culture. Now the word culture, when I was a young teacher in 1970, the, young, the word culture didn't exist between teachers. We were never talking about culture or climate. I just looked at a, uh, a program for a middle school conference coming up in the spring. There are 60 breakout sessions at this conference. 30 of them have the word culture or climate in the title of the breakout sessions. So that's the only thing we talk about now is culture or climate. It's a major factor. And so how do we create a culture that, that is a culture of learning? How do we create a culture that's an effective and healthy culture of safety and trust? There are specific things that we can do that, to establish that. And then the third component of a top 20 school is that we help a school implement 20 top 20 strategies or concepts into the curriculum so the kids are getting these things. And to get back to your point, when these things are being taught to the kids, they're also being shared in meaningful ways with parents so that what the kids are getting in school is being reinforced at home and it makes it better for both the their experience in school and their experience at home. So I think I think you're right on target when you when you you say parents need to be involved in this in some way. Mm. Let me ask you this question, Paul. So we're talking about parents being involved. There's a good point there, Hamza about it. Have you noticed any um, difference or correlation with in regards to children whose parents are um, college educated, have college degrees, and the ones that don't. And the reason I bring that up is years ago I had a, a roommate and she was a teacher and at a private school and she would talk about that all the time. Like she would get parents calling and complaining, oh, you're giving them too much work, you know, they can't do all this and whatever. And it was always from the, the kids whose parents hadn't went to college, but the kids whose parents went to college and got degrees or whatever, they were like, you know what, you let us know what, what their assignments are and we'll make sure it gets done. It's like they understood mm -hmm. what was coming and they, were, they weren't having it that their kids were like, oh, we've got too much. They just, they knew, they said, no, you need to get ready and prepare for this. And so it was like two different sides. So I was just curious if you, what, what your you know, thoughts were on that. Well, I think, I think there is something to that. I mean, we don't have any... Uh any uh, research about those specific things. I think there are people who, uh, who are uh, um, more comfortable in the school scene, you know? So obviously if somebody's gone to college, they've, they've probably been a little bit more successful. They've been uh, in, in, in the school scene. So they, they know the language, they're more comfortable with that. And they now also have expectations of their, of their kids as opposed to someone who's not. Now, I think there are people who, who have not been to college who, who can be fabulous parents and can even um, do wonderful things to help their kids in school. But, but, but probably if you looked at across the board percentages and everything, um, kids whose parents have been to college, you know, are, are probably going to have a little bit, bit of an advantage. However, let me throw this in as well. I think some of us who have been to college um, we've now placed expectations on kids that are creating um, a, a fairly serious pressure on, on, on their achievement 
on, 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 on defining themselves by their achievement. Again, that's, this is a gross generalization, I mean, um, but, but I think that's something that I would be cautious about and, and ask parents who have achieved uh, academically that they be aware of that and is there, a, is there, a, is there an expectation that, um, that my son or daughter um, has, to, has to arrive at the same level. So, um, you know, there's just so many different factors here and variables in all of this that uh, I, I, I'm not sure you can just uh, categorize parents who've been to college as, as those kids are going to have a better time than parents who have it. I think there's something to that, but you, you want to be careful about any, any generalizations around that, I think. And because it always, it's always going to come down to the individual one, right? How is this parent um, relating to their kids relative to school? How is, how is this parent doing it? And what, what can we do to help that parent be more effective, whether that's a college-educated parent, high school-educated parent, or somebody like my grandfather. My grandfather never went to school. My grandfather couldn't, my grandfather couldn't read or write, including his own name. And he was one of the more, most, most influential people in my life because he was there. Right? My grandfather was there in my life. In fact, he called me Mibotcha. My, my grandfather came from Italy. He called me Mibotcha, which means my boy. Right? See, I, I belonged to this man. I was his. He, he, um, uh, even though he, he, he would make a check when, when he had to sign something. It was just a check mark. So, um, well, love will, you know, love conquers all. Certainly, love, love will, uh, love will uh, make a big difference. Uh, whether that love is coming from a college-educated person or a high school-educated person or from a totally unformally educated person. My grandfather was uneducated, but he was wise. And that wisdom made, had a major impact on, on my life, certainly. Yeah, I will say that, you know, I, I love superhero movies, and my favorite superhero was my grandfather. So Yeah. Um, he didn't go to college, uh, but let me let me ask you the contrast with the grandfather versus like uh, David S. with the college educated and expectation. So with your grandfather and maybe you, I know for myself, I had time to lay out in the backyard on my back and watch the clouds form, and yeah. you know let nature happen. Versus today, these children are so managed from like five years old. I mean they're. Every waking hour is structured. Is yeah. there a benefit to having structure versus having that free time? What's your take on that? Well, I mean, both are critical. Both are crucial. But I, I do see us moving more in that in that structure activity. Kids are involved in this, uh, you know, school all day long. Then they've got this practice at night, and they've got this other thing going on. And and I I I, I was with um, on Friday. I was with a school district in northern Minnesota, and uh, during part of the day, I was just sitting at the table with kindergarten kindergarten teachers and first grade teachers. Um, I, I presented something, and they were now talking about it. And I, I said to them, I said, do any of you believe that we just are expecting way too much from kindergartners and first graders in terms of academic achievement? Every one of them said yes. We are, we are pushing way too much. On, on, on the young kids. 
And, and that's, I don't know that that's debatable in my profession. I mean, every time I talk to a kindergarten teacher, my, my wife was a lifelong kindergarten teacher. Anytime I talk to a kindergarten teacher, first grade teacher, they feel that there's just way too much being expected, being pushed down into the, into the younger ages. So, and, and at the, so here's what a teacher said to me on Friday. She said, uh, they don't know how to play. We're, we're, mm-hmm. Kids are losing the sense of play. And, and you really learn a lot when you play. <laughs> um, uh, first, it's fun. It's enjoyable. You learn about yourself. You learn how to get along with other people. And play is really critical. So I don't, I don't think this is an either or. I think it needs to be a both and. There needs to be structure in a kid's life. That, well, we want them involved in certain things. But there also has to be play. There also has to be exactly what you said. Kids have to lie in the grass and look up at the clouds. Um, and have that, that, that quiet time and that, uh, that, that time when it's just free to be themselves. So I, I, um, I had asked, I, I showed a video, a video clip with these kids in uh, Birmingham on Tuesday. I did a retreat with 5th and 6th graders and then a retreat with 7th and 8th graders. And I showed a video clip. It's really powerful. It's a young kid at a local high school here. Uh, when she was a freshman, she 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 made this um, this video, and essentially she says, "I am not defined by test scores," and she goes on and talks about you know she 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 does things slowly. Uh, it takes her a long time uh, to do an assignment, whereas her sister is kind of the A student who kind of flies through everything, right? And kind of the main theme in her essay was. I'm, I'm not defined. I don't, believe I'm de- I don't believe I am defined by test scores. So when, after watching this, and the kids didn't blink, the kids that I was with in Birmingham, they didn't blink when they were watching this. So I, when, when this was over, I said to them, do any of you believe that you are sometimes defined by your test scores? Every kid raised his hand. Every kid. I said, do you ever believe that you are sometimes defined by OPOs. OPO is a phrase that we use in our training for other people's opinions, other people's opinions. Do you think you're defined by other people's opinions, right? Every kid in that room raised his or her hand. Now, there's something about other people's opinions that we should listen to when it's in our best interest. But my concern is that kids are, are defining themselves by something that's coming from out there, not from inside. And, um, and I think that's creating a greater stress. We now know that more middle schools are experiencing depression. We now know that more middle and high school kids are, are attempting suicide. I mean, where's that coming from? You know, you're, you're not born with that. It's, it, it develops over time from the experiences that kids are having. So I think, uh, you know, I, I would like to see more kids do exactly what you were doing, lay in the grass and look at the clouds. I think I think kids need more of that rather than less of that. I really appreciate this conversation, and pardon me for I'm actually playing both sides of the fence because you know there's arguments on both sides, and I think David and I have had the privilege when we talk about intrinsic motivation, we speak with people on all walks of life, and it seems like when they're you know 35 and up, that's if they didn't if they didn't address some of the stuff we're talking about, that's where they're going back to where the, they were influenced by OPO, as you mentioned, and now they're taking the time to meditate and spend that quiet time. But these people are getting that realization, you know, when they felt they had no other choice. And you're saying from, from early childhood, it's leading to that. 
Absolutely. It, you know, your, your passion for intrinsic motivation, um, that is rarely experienced in American schools. It's a major concern of mine. And that's why I was excited when, when you guys invited me, just to know that you're, you're focusing on this thing called internal motivation. Um, I have asked, again, you know, we're, we're thousands of teachers, and I've asked, I've asked thousands and thousands of teachers, do you believe in American schools that we are focusing more on internal motivation or external motivation? You only get one answer when you ask that question. <laughs> it, we know that in American schools, we are focusing almost exclusively on external motivation. And, and here's the deal. Any expert in motivation would tell you that if external motivation has any value, it's in the short term. I think there's a role for external motivation in, in, in raising kids and educating kids. There's a role for it. But we've done that exclusively. I'll give you an example, a very personal example. Um, the, the grandson that I told you about is, we call him Minnesota Joe because he lives in Minnesota. We've got another grandson we call Chicago Joe because he lives in Chicago, right? And when Chicago Joe was in kindergarten, and he goes to a good school, and he had a good teacher. My wife and I were visiting our daughter and her family in the Chicago area, and uh, I said to Joe, this little kindergartner, I said, Joe, tell Grandpa something you're learning in school. He said, Grandpa, we're learning about bear bucks. Now, when he said that, it kind of went over my head. But think of the Chicago bears, all right? And he said, when we're good, we're given a bear buck. And when we get five bear bucks, then we can go to the school store and we can get something. And, and here's my thought. My grandson has been in kindergarten for two weeks, and they're already stuffing external motivation down his throat. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, Joe, are you learning anything else? He said, yeah, Grandpa, I'm learning about the stoplight. And I said, well, that's cool because you live in Chicago. There are a lot of those. I said, Joe, what, what do you know about the stoplight? He said, well, Grandpa, when the light's green, it means we're being good. When it's yellow, we're not so good. And when the light's red, <laughs> we've got to stop doing whatever we're doing. And I thought again, the two things that my kid is being, my grandson is being taught, it's just about external motivation. And you don't have to do that with Joe. Joe's a curious kid. Teach him something, and, and he'll, he'll, he's going to latch on to that. He's gonna, Joe loves to learn. So, again, I, 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 we need balance here. There's, there's a role. There are certain kids at times in their life when they need a reward or a punishment. But if that's all we're doing with that kid, there's no way that kid's going to be a lifelong learner. So we, we've, we've, I've, I've had this conversation with thousands and thousands of teachers. And, and I sometimes ask, so why do we do that? And I'll never forget. A teacher said, we do that because that's what we've always done. We don't even know. We don't even know how to inspire a kid's internal motivation. We're not. We're, it's 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 not even on the on our radar screen. So that's what we're trying to do with top twenty. Is we're trying to put it on the radar screen. We've got to start talking about this. We got to start paying attention. And what is the effect of external motivation? How is that impacting the human development of our of our students? Right. And if it is, if it's if it's if it's fabulous, and it's just leading to learning, and it's leading to it's leading to uh, lifelong learning. Keep doing it, but you got to prove that to me first. And, and I'm not seeing any of it. I'm not seeing the proof of that. It's a control, all right. Uh, if I reward kids or punish or, or punish kids, I can control them. I can get a different behavior out of them while I'm doing that. But as soon as they're away from me, now what? 
So I think what you guys are on to is just such a big and important issue if we're concerned about human development, which we need to be. I think I laughed a little too hard at the Chicago Joe example because <laughs> I, I, did, I did the red light, green light <laughs> in the classroom. And the other thing that I'm, I'm really um, embarrassed or to talk about is the fact it's twofold. Uh, one is, like you're saying, we need to lay out and uh, just lay out and look at the clouds. And a lot of schools took away um, recess, right? Yeah. So if they took away recess and then you have a person like me, I'll put myself under the under this light spotlight right now, someone like me that did that red light, green light. But then on top of that, I did the reward for junk food. So if they were acquired, they got like a snack or a candy. Yeah. And so you also have obesity and the kids aren't getting any exercise because when you exercise, that's giving you, like you're saying, you're playing, it's giving you a way to learn and, and we're, we're not giving them those opportunities, and myself and and I learned that from other teachers. They were like, "Just give them some candy; they'll shut up." You know that control thing. Yeah, so, yeah. I kind of I did my own part in ruining some of the kids. I would say. Well, and, and I did too, and, and not because we're evil; it's because we didn't know any better, right? We, we at that time we didn't know any better. So I'm I'm not I'm not blaming teachers or my profession. I'm saying, okay, let's 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 think about this. Let's talk about this. Because I, I believe in my profession. If we're talking about things, we'll come up with better ways. There's a, there's a fabulous school uh, in Royal Palm Beach, Florida. The name of the school is Ideal School. And it is ideal, let me tell you. Because my friend uh, Wendy founded this school and is the principal of this school. And when you walk into that school, I, I remember the first time I was there, I'm watching these kids in this class and I'm thinking, like, is Wendy giving them money? No. She has, she has learned and her faculty has learned how to keep kids internally motivated in learning. It, it, this is going to sound really ridiculous, but let me just say it. Probably most of what I said today sounds ridiculous. Uh, there's a mirror in every room in this school. And I said to Wendy, I said, tell me about the mirror. What, what's up with the mirrors? And she said, well, when kids want to know how they're doing, uh, we just tell them to go and look in the mirror. And then they see the joy and satisfaction on their face from having learned how to read something or how to add fractions or whatever it happens to be. Now, when these kids are testing at three years above grade level, <laughs> wow. and they never, talk about, they never talk about test scores, they simply keep kids involved in learning. Right? Now, is there ever a time when there's external motivation in school? Yes. But boy, it is percentage-wise very, very tiny, very, very tiny. And so you've got kids who are passionate about learning, which, by the way, kids come out of the womb that way. We don't teach kids how to, in, how to uh, uh, love learning. We don't teach them how to love learning. They just come that way. Our job is to, is to keep that alive. And my job as a grandfather is to make sure my, my grandkids continually love learning. And then when they go to school, a teacher's job is to make sure they continually love learning. And if that happens, but see, that's a natural thing. Learning, learning is a natural desire. But we found ways to shut it down. Um, and some of the things that you practice, some of the things that I practice, because we didn't know, it was, it was actually shutting down this natural passion and desire for learning. We, we've got to restore that. We've got to get to a better place where we're, where we're not having a negative impact on curiosity with a positive impact on a kid's curiosity. So I have an, an OPO question for you, Paul. Yeah. So 
from an OPO perspective, it's great, or from an internal perspective, it's great to be internally motivated of what you want to learn. But from an extrinsic uh, opinion, we're ranked, the United States is ranked 17th in educational performance. And so since George Bush in the early 2000s, there was this huge STEM push, science, technology, engineering, and math. And if you're not in that, those four core competencies, then you're throwing your education away. What, what would you say to that? I, again, those are important areas. That's a dimension of being a human being. That's a, a dimension of it. And, it. and those areas are tremendously important. But that's not the whole, right? That's not the whole. There's this other social emotional. So I, I would love to see kids involved in STEM in every school and involved in social emotional learning in every school. Now you've got a healthy kid. You've got a kid who's going to have this balance in, in, in the kinds of things that are important to, to learn. Um, it, we have this tendency to just move in one direction and just you know, put all of our chips on, on, on one number. When we need to be, we need to be a little bit more balanced. So I, I, I support STEM. I've, I've got a couple of grandkids that are loving working with robots and stuff like that. But there's this other dimension, um, this, this human dimension, this social-emotional dimension that is certainly important. I mean, at the end of the day, are people going to have satisfaction in life because of their mathematical IQ, or is it because they, can, they know how to relate to other human beings? Now, I, I want both. I sincerely want both. But boy, at the end of the day, if I don't know how to play with other people and, and relate to other people, it seems like our, our, our lives get, um, the, the level of satisfaction is diminished, I think, in those situations. So again, let, let's try to do both of those, and we can. I think we can. One of, one of the things I've been focusing on lately in our training, uh, and we'll do this tomorrow. We're going to be at a school in uh, uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, tomorrow, uh, if we can get through this snowstorm and, and get there in time, um, is essentials. The whole idea of essentials, right? What are the essentials that kids need to get? Because if they, if they get these essentials, they will literally – experience school in a dramatically different way and a, a dramatically more positive way. And if they experience school in a dramatically more positive way, they'll also experience life in a dramatically more positive way. So let, let me give you two examples of essentials. My wife is a kindergarten teacher, did a unit on loons. Now, loons are the Minnesota state bird. Now, I think it's cool to learn about loons, uh, their mating habits and the, the way they make sounds and everything and how how the mother loon cares for the baby loon. That's, a, that's, a, that's an okay unit. But would you say it's essential? If you live in Minnesota, do you have to know about loons? <laughs> that's an obvious question. It's an obvious answer. No, you don't. Right? Knowing about loons is not essential. Now, I was an English teacher, uh, literature in English, and I taught a unit on alliteration, um, three or four words in a row that begin with the same letter. What a cool unit. Is it essential? Absolutely not. 99.9% <laughs> of people on this planet do not have any idea what alliteration is, and many of those people are doing just fine. So what are the essentials then? What are the things that, that the kids really need to get? 
and, and this is one of the things, of course, that we've kind of focused on in our book, on the Top 20 Teens book. Um, okay. but, but all kids, one of the things, that if they get this, if they really understand this, both in their head, intellectually, but also in their gut, emotionally, that their lives will be significantly better in a positive way. So let me, let me just give you one of those. Um, and, and I'm going to give it to you in the, in the form of a question. So you guys answer this question. What do, you think, think, what do you think kids are thinking about their thinking and its impact on their experiences? What are kids thinking about their thinking and its impact on their experiences? How would you answer that question? How old is the child? Well, let's say fourth grade up through sophomore in high school. Okay. Because I would say sophomore and higher, they're going through their changes, chargers, chargers. So who knows what they're thinking. But uh, <laughs> what would you say, David? I don't know. I'm just trying to take myself back to that point in time and try to remember what I was thinking. <laughs> um, yes. What were you thinking about your thinking? Yeah, what was I thinking about my thinking? Um, I think I was thinking that no one else was thinking what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. I had all these, whatever was going through my mind, I'm like, I know no one else thinks like this. I think I'm just the only one. <laughs> yes. Well, that's very common. But I, I think the answer to that question is they're not. Kids are not thinking about their thinking and yeah. its impact on their, on their experiences. So we do, a, we do a piece, one of our major concepts and strategies and, and uh, 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 lessons is on that. We, we call it above and below the line. And for us, above the line means is when our thinking is, is working in our best interest. And below the line is when it's not working in our best interest, when our thinking is not working well for us. So we do a whole piece on this. When we train teachers, we, we have a curriculum that would focus on this with kids. Now, does that make a difference? See, I, think, I don't think it's just kids. I don't think adults are thinking about their thinking. Mm-hmm. I, I, we believe that our thinking is our thinking. Now, that's true. But sometimes it's working and sometimes it's not. Here's, here's the metaphor for it. A bicycle. So you guys are in Atlanta, all right? And I, I meet you in Atlanta, and I say, hey, gang, I'd like you guys to come to Minnesota and visit. Um, not now in February. <laughs> come in mm-hmm. October. Right? Come in October, mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to go for a bike ride around the Twin Cities. We'll see the sites, stop at the lake, stop for lunch, you know, visit some of the highlights. And so since you're coming from Atlanta, you don't have a bike. So I've got two bikes for each of you guys. And the bikes, I, so when I give you the bikes, you realize, you know, um, the pedals are off, the steering, the steering mechanism is not right, you know, the brakes aren't working, the tires are low. What would you say to me if I was going to give you those bikes to go for a bike ride? You say, Paul, this isn't going to work. No, it's not. We know that about mechanical things like bicycles. Sometimes they're working, sometimes they're not working. We know that about other things, cars, snowblowers in Minnesota. Sometimes they're working, we should use them, sometimes they're not. But my friends, the same thing is true about our thinking. Sometimes our thinking is working and we should use it, but sometimes it's not, and we should call time out. So we have to teach kids that concept so that they know when their thinking is working and when their thinking is not working. And so we're teaching this to kindergartners uh, in, in schools across the country. I walked, I walked into a second grade class, and when you mentioned second grade the other, uh, a few minutes ago, I thought about this second grade class I was in 
in Birmingham, Alabama on Tuesday. And this teacher had learned about this above and below the line on Monday when she was in a session with me. And Tuesday morning, she teaches it to the kids. And the principal said, Paul, would you just stop in the second grade classroom? I just want you to see what's going on. So I went into the second grade classroom. And I said, hey, kids, tell me something that you're learning today. And this little boy said, I'm learning about above and below the line. I said, what does that mean? I was playing dumb. He, he explains it to me. And I thought, fabulous. I said, how do you, how do you know when you're below the line? This little girl said, well, we have, we have indicators. Right? That's just another part of our concept here. We have indicators. Indicators tell us when we're below the line. She said, my indicator is that I kind of get grumpy. This is a second grader. It's a second grade kid who had just learned this maybe a half hour before I walked in that room. And I said, well, if you're below the line, what happens? She said, another kid said, well, do you want to get above? You, you want to get your thinking working again? I said, well, how do you do that? This other little kid said, trampolines. Now, that's another one of our concepts, trampolines. You can trampoline back above. I said, how do you do that? And this one kid said, I take a nap. <laughs> so they're already into this. The teacher had learned it on Monday. She taught it Tuesday morning, and these kids now knew it. See, this isn't, this isn't how to get to the moon. This is just about how to understand ourselves. It, we were doing a retreat a couple years ago about this above and below the line stuff. Seventh graders. And, and I said, what are some trampolines for you? What are the things you can do to get yourself back above the line where your thinking's working? Here's what a boy said, seventh grade boy, 12-year-old kid. He said, kindness. He said, when I'm mean, I find myself going below the line. But when I'm kind, I find myself coming above the line. And I said to this boy, I said, I'm jealous. <laughs> I wish I had known that when I was 12 years old. Right? And another boy in that same group said, gratitude. He said, when I'm grateful for something, my thinking works better. But when I complain, school sucks, homework sucks, lunch sucks. When I complain, I go below the line. That's a 12-year-old kid. Learning, they, they, they can learn that in 15 minutes. And what a difference that makes. So I think that's essential. So rather than teaching about the loon or teaching about alliteration, it seems to me that we really need to be teaching about awareness of our thinking. And, and we can do that with kids as young as kindergarten. We've got a whole curriculum for kids as young as kindergarten. So that, that's, one of the, that's one of the essentials. And I think as a profession, of educators, we got to step back. We got to look at what we're doing, and let's let's determine: is that essential? If it is, keep doing it. If we're teaching kids how to read, that's essential. I think that's essential if you want to be um, effective in 2019. But boy, there are a lot of things that I was teaching. A lot of things that I was teaching, certainly not essential, and I was leaving essential things out. Again, I just didn't understand. I didn't know that at the time. So what are the essentials? I think that's a big question for us in education. Let me ask you an essential question with regards to gender. So with a, there's a school of thought, and I think it was posited by, by uh, Malcolm Gladwell and Outliers, and, he, and some of it is based on economics, but I'm, I'm going to ask it anyway, for, especially for a boy's perspective. So the, the premise is if you can afford it, wait until the boy is six to go to school, 
because if they go to five, you know, they may be puny. They may, you know, they didn't develop as quicker as, as some of the other kids. Whereas if you waited a year, their sense of confidence is higher. Um, they're more apt to go out for sports. They're more apt to have that social learning that you're talking about. But it's all predicated on, if you can afford it, keeping that boy out an additional year and having them start at six versus five. Would, would he, are you familiar with that argument? I am. Uh, I am. And I, I don't know that I would just limit it to gender. Uh, I'll give you a very personal example. We, we have two granddaughters who are two months apart. Um, four, they're four years old. They've got a couple birthdays coming up, one on, on uh, St. Patrick's Day. In fact, Isla believes in St. Paul because St. Paul has a big Irish population and we have a big uh, parade and everything on St. Patrick's Day. Isla believes that we really are all celebrating her birthday in St. Paul because that's her birthday, right? Um, Emma is Emma's birthday. Emma will be uh, will be five two months later, right? And so our daughters and their husbands are trying to decide um, if uh, if going to kindergarten next year would be the the best choice for for the for these two kids. Uh, and 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 it appears again, my my wife is kind of the expert in the family on this because she taught kindergarten that uh, that Isla probably is ready to go. I mean, there's like no question about that. Uh, Emma is very bright. I, I've never seen Emma walk or talk. She either dances or sings. This is one of the happiest kids on the planet, right? But my wife probably, my wife believes that it might be better for her to stay back, um, just for a confidence level as she as she moves through school. So I I don't I I, I don't know if it's a big difference between boys and girls. Um, I think you just have to teach, teach, teach take each kid individually, and say are they ready for this. But, uh, you know, keeping a kid back is not a sign that that, that, you, that, that kid has a bad parent. Um, I think sometimes parents start feeling that way. It, it's, a, it's a sign, something tell, says something about them. But it's just the developmental stages of children. That's why we, we wrote a book called Top 20 Parents. We have the book that you've, you were interested in is called Top 20 Teens. But we have another book called Top 20 Parents, and it's a book for parents of young kids, eight years old and younger. And what, can, what should we be expecting from kids that age, you know, given, given their developmental stage? So, again, I think it's taking each child individually. Where are they? What do they need now? How can we provide that? Should, should they wait a year? Or So I, I think in some ways, ideally, ideally this isn't going to happen, but ideally it probably would be good if some schools started, you know, you, you brought some kids in in, in in August or September to start a class, and you brought another group in in January to start a class. Um, mm-hmm. Now, there's some practical problems with that, I understand. But just in terms of where kids are, I think that might be uh, a, a, a more effective way of doing it. Hey, I've had this thought at times. Think about this. Every 12-year-old kid in America is in seventh grade. <laughs> when you stop and think about that, you would say, well, that's absurd. That every 12-year-old kid is in the same grade? Does that mean every 12-year-old kid is, is the same? Well, obviously they're not. So, so why have we established this kind of a system where every 12-year-old kid is in seventh grade, every 13-year-old kid is in eighth grade? Right? Um, there, there's a, there's, a, school, there's a, a school program here in Minnesota, and the name of the school is, is WIN, W-I-N, and it stands for What I Need. <laughs> and when, the, when I was working with this group, I said, you know, every school in America should be called WIN. Every school in America should be focusing on 
what I need, what each, each individual kid needs. Now, again, there's some challenges with that, but that should be the overall goal. What does this child need if he's 12 years old or if he's 6 years old? What does that child need and what, to what extent can we provide that? And not just do something because we've always done it that way, doing this because every 12-year-old kid is going to be in seventh grade. But what, is, what does a child need? So I, I think, again, those are just challenges for those of us in education and for those of us who are parents that we need to be asking and, and, uh, and struggling with. And to the extent that we do, um, our kids are going to benefit. I'm, in, I'm actually encouraged by what you said as far as uh, even thinking about starting some schools in August and starting some in January here in Atlanta. You know, uh, one was, I think, the major thing was survival, um, and I mean that literally because a lot of children were being hit by cars uh, on their way to the school bus. So mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. the other side of it was, especially teenagers, they need more sleep. Uh, their brains are developing. They need the 9 to 11 hours as young as they are. And so the schools start later here, and that's only been two or three years ago. And so there's that argument of should the kids go to school year-round because if they go to traditional nine months you're ta- and they have that summer break, that first one or two months that they're back, you're just trying to get them to remember what they lost over the summer. Yes, yes. I, I, again, the, the only reason why we have three months off was because we, we were an agricultural society. We needed the kids home on the farm to, 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 to work on the, on, on the farm, and that's, where that, that's kind of where that comes from. Well, we don't do that anymore. We don't, we don't need kids to be working on the farm for three months in the summertime, but we're kind of stuck in this old, this old way. Let me say something about starting time. Because it's pretty well understood that kids at every age are sleep deprived. And for, for high school kids, it's roughly about two hours, two hours a day sleep deprived. Now, there was a, there was a district that because of that, they decide, and because kids were staying up till 2 o'clock in the morning on their cell phones um, texting each other, right, they decided to start school an hour later. The buses were going to go an hour later. And when I heard that, I thought, that is the dumbest idea ever, for that reason, because of kids on their cell phones. Because if, if kids start an hour later, instead of staying up till 2 o'clock in the morning, what are they going to do now? They're going to stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning, right? Yeah, right. You, know, you don't need to be Einstein to figure that one out. You see, the answer to that problem is not the starting time of school. The answer to that problem is a parent saying to their sons or daughters, your cell phone will be on my nightstand by 10 o'clock at night. See, parents have to take some responsibility for that, for that problem. Right? It's not the bus time. It's not the starting time of school. We just have to, we have to take some responsibility for that. So, yes, I mean, I think kids do need more sleep, absolutely. And we, here's what we know. The, the brain grows during that time. <laughs> Literally, the brain will grow during sleep. And so if you're two hours sleep deprived day after day after day, that's, that has neurological implications. And, of course, if it has neurological implications, it then has educational implications. Mm-hmm. So we, we've got to think this thing through. This whole issue of technology, I think, is becoming a major problem in American schools. We've seen it as kind of a salvation piece. Well, it's not. In fact, a lot of people in the Silicon Valley are sending their kids to schools where paper and pencils being used, not technology because they know of the 
uh, of the addictive nature of, te- of, of technology. And they don't want their kids addicted. Um, they, they don't seem to mind having our other, the other kids addicted, but they don't want them. <laughs> right. So we I'm can, glad that, you said that. Another, yeah, that's another. No, I'm, I'm, I'm collecting articles on technology, and, and some of them include interviews of people from the Silicon Valley. And mm-hmm. one guy said, you know, we thought we could control this, and, and we can't because it's, we're talking about the pleasure center of the brain. And when stuff gets there, it, it's, at a young age, you can't, con- you can't control it. I have, a, I have a dear friend, a local fellow here, uh, who works with uh, kids. Uh, he's a psychologist, works with kids and adolescents and the impact of technology. And he said to me one day, Paul, it's more, better, faster, fun. More, better, faster, fun. That when kids are on the cell phones or screen time, they're experiencing more, better, faster, fun. And now when they walk into a classroom, there is no teacher who is more, better, faster, fun. And so we just turn that off. We just turn, kids just turn off the teacher because the cell phone has conditioned them to more, better, faster, fun. Now, again, I think there's a role of technology in American schools, but it's not the role that we've given it. We've given it way too much permission to do whatever it wants. And as a result, we've got kids disengaging. I wrote another book called Why Students, maybe we should get together some other time and talk about this other book, Why Students Disengage in American Schools and What We Can Do About It, because it's becoming a major problem. Right? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's leave that as a cliffhanger. <laughs> and yeah, definitely, yeah. I do think it's an ongoing, um, as you mentioned, it'll continue to change and, and what, who better to have than someone that teaches top 20 training. So, Paul, if you could talk about how, I mean, you, you reference some of your books and, and you work with so many teachers across the country. I'm sure some parents or some teachers want more information. So how could they uh, put out your website, your social media, and how they can get in touch with you? Sure, wonderful. Thank you. Um, well, our website is www.top20training, and the 20 is the number two zero. Dot com, top20training.com, or please uh, email me directly, uh, Paul, lowercase p, P-A-U-L, at top20training.com. We'd love to have a conversation with you and support you with whatever challenges uh, you, as a parent or as a teacher that you might be uh, encountering and, and how we can support that. Fantastic. Well, you've just been tuned to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. Paul, it was a pleasure. Let's definitely stay in touch. Wonderful. Thanks, guys. Thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for what you're doing. Appreciate yeah. it. Stay warm. All right. Real good. We're headed to <laughs> right. Iowa. Take care, guys. All right. Alrighty, bye-bye. Bye-bye.